This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot. I assume Tom. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a man who is responsible for 95% of the United States' childhood, beginning with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, in fact, we met at the Newport Beach Film Festival, which, not surprising, is going on right now, uh, virtually, for the 25th anniversary of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And he's been responsible for The Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, and everything else as part of the Disney Renaissance. Don Hahn, how are you today? I'm really good. I'm really good. How about you? I'm great, and it's always a pleasure to see you. Uh, I know these are interesting times, and this year I'm sure we would have been together this Saturday for the Disney retrospective yet again, but unfortunately we have to be together virtually. Yeah, Newport Beach is always wonderful, and we've, gosh, we did a show down there for years. It started with Roy Disney, who lived in Newport Beach, um, and, and did kind of a Disney oddities, rarities show, so... um but it's still good to be here. It's good to be alive, uh, and uh, life is good. Yeah. Well, life is definitely good for you because uh, we're considering you now for a Critics' Choice Award for your film Howard, uh, the documentary about Howard. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, – I've wanted to tell Howard's story for a long time. I was kind of afraid it would get lost because he's such a big part of uh, our, our cultural lives um, of the planet Earth. Uh, he's written so many songs that we – still saying pay tribute to you today and I was lucky enough to work with him so to tell his story was a pleasure well you always have a knack of making us tear up just at the right moment I think you have the finger on the pulse of everybody's tear ducts when, when it comes Try. to it. you know it, it starts I guess it starts with me because I tear up um, some of these stories are very emotional and Howard had a very joyful life and uh, contributed so much to our entertainment, as you said, uh, as children and our children's children. Um, but sadly, he died during the AIDS crisis in, uh, in, in the early 90s. So we really lost someone of a huge talent, and, and uh, that in itself is, is sad. I mean, him and Alan Menken did so much together. You know, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, again, Beauty and the Beast. We're listing your resume uh, yet again and working with the two of them. But he also did Little Shop of Horrors on top of that. Yeah, you know, what's remarkable is he was uh, somewhat of an average guy, if you can say that, uh, from Baltimore, uh, went to school at Boston University at Goddard, and then ended up getting his master's degree in Indiana. And in his 20s, came to New York and set up a theater, which is in itself ridiculous. Uh, so he sets up this off-off-Broadway theater that holds 99 people and starts producing plays and writing plays and writing musicals and uh, did... God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, which is a Kurt Vonnegut uh, book that he adapted into a musical with Alan Menken. That was the first time they wrote together. And then very shortly after that, out of that same little 99th seat theater came um, Little Shop of Horrors. Wow. Uh, that, that's definitely something that uh, you don't think that it just came out of some little theater in New York. But uh, take us back a little bit because, you know, it's been roughly, what, 28, 29 years since, since Howard passed. Yeah. Um, you know, your first encounter with Howard when you first met him and then how long has this been a process of you wanting to pay tribute to Howard? Well, I met Howard when we were making Beauty and the Beast and he had already been working at Disney. Um, he, 
he came to Disney after he had somewhat of a failure on Broadway uh, from a show called Smile, which is actually a good show if you look back on it. Um, but it just wasn't right. It wasn't connecting with the audience. Uh, there were no stars in the show, so it wasn't driven by a celebrity or anything. Uh, and it just it did not work out. So he, he, it's somewhat too strong of a word, but you could say he fled Broadway and came out thanks to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was kind of courting him at the time, um, came out to LA and uh, we were the beneficiaries of that. He had already worked on Little Mermaid, which is that great, you know, obviously a great movie from John Musker and Ron Clements. And, um, every time a song came in, everybody was just screaming. It was like, Oh my God, this is wonderful. And, um, I was in London at the time working on Roger Rabbit. And I would hear these songs and I was so jealous. Um, and we were after Roger Rabbit working on Beauty and the Beast and had a, a fairly good start. And uh, then as some movies do, it fell apart. Uh, we just couldn't get the story working. The tone of it wasn't right. It was a little too serious. It's a little too Jean Cocteau. Uh, and, and we um, hunted and decided to go after, uh, throw out everything we had done and go after Howard. And uh, so I met him in, in Orlando he was down there for a, a, a Little Mermaid press junket. So Mermaid was done. Everybody was thrilled about it for good reason. And um, through the help of many people, we talked him into um, helping out with Beauty and the Beast. And then we went to uh, his hometown. We didn't know it at the time but because you know, we thought he was just being a diva. But uh, we had to work in uh, Fishkill, Beacon, uh, the Hudson River Valley uh, in New York. And we're all you know, California kids pretty much, but, uh, we packed up in the snow and went up there and worked with Howard. And later, of course, we found out the reason we were there was that he was very, uh, becoming ill from his, um, HIV diagnosis. Wow. I know, uh, you know, same thing happened with Freddie Mercury. I think, uh, both of them worked till the very end. Um, it's interesting that you say Howard had a failed production off Broadway or on Broadway that led him to work for Disney and become one of the foundations of the Disney Renaissance in his musical abilities. I think we'd call that failing upward at that point. <laughs> there was no guarantees. I mean, Disney animation was, had made some good movies, movies like, uh, you know, even Fox and the Hound's a good movie. Um, uh, Great Mouse Detective is a good movie. Uh, so there, and there have been some soft movies like Black Cauldron, but you know, that's fine. It had a lot of good work in it. Um, but yeah, Howard um, collaborated with Marvin Hamlish, and they were both stars at the time. Uh, Marvin probably a bit more because he had won Oscars and had done Chorus Line. Um, and Howard not only wrote the song, uh, the lyrics, but wrote the book and was directing. Um, so he had the three most uh, kind of demanding jobs on Smile. Um, and it just didn't work out. Another bonus out of Smile, though, the lead in Smile was an... Um, an actress named Jody Benson. And uh, when Smile didn't work out, he asked Jody if she would audition for this uh, role of Ariel in Little Mermaid. And of course she got that role. So uh, even Jody Benson comes from that, uh, that Broadway show Smile. Amazing. Uh, when the time came to sit there and finally put a documentary together honoring Howard, um, what was the final catalyst that said, all right, now I'm going to sit down and do this. I mean, you know, we've heard that there's talks right now of Hunchback of Notre Dame taking a live action role that you're a part of. You know, you've just done Beauty and the Beast. You did the Cinderella stuff and everything else that's been live action now. Uh, how does that calm things down from live action to documentary filmmaking and wanting to follow Howard's career and finally give him a tribute that you saw fit 
Well, I about 10 years ago, I had made a movie with Peter Schneider uh, called Waking Sleeping Beauty. And it was about the uh, that period at Disney in the 80s and 90s when animation kind of came back. And the company actually came back. Uh, but it was also about palace intrigue and wasn't so much about the artists or the making of the films as it was about the kind of inner workings of a studio and some of the egos involved. Um, we touched on Howard in that movie. So time had passed. And I just thought, you know, there's so much more to say about Howard. Um, I had lunch with his sister, um, Sarah, who was visiting in Los Angeles once. And, and so it was almost an impulse. I just thought I was sitting there with her and I just thought, you know, I, I think I have to make a movie about Howard. Um, and she was very polite to me. I think she later said she, you know, didn't have a clue that I would actually do it. Um, but it, it really was that thing where it was important to me. And I, I felt like I was in a unique position to do it. And I don't mean to sound like egotistical about that, but I just thought factually, I knew all the players. I knew Howard's family. I knew the great directors at Disney he worked with. Um, I knew how to find some of the film clips and, and materials. And so I thought I, I'm in a unique position to do this. I need to better do it. Um, so it was really that kind of impulse. And it took uh, probably close to four years to pull it together. And, and a lot of that time we were working on other shows. Um, but the, the essence of it was to try to just pay tribute to this guy and do it in as authentic a way as possible. And, uh, and, and very much in the style that I like to work in, which is kind of found objects, a scrapbook, uh, you know, a piece of film here and a, a photo. We, you know, we, we went to, uh, Howard's sister's house and scanned a lot of her family photos and home movies. We went to the New York Public Library theater collection and found great stills of Howard. We went to the um, Library of Congress where Howard's collection and papers are. And so it was a treasure hunt, but uh, in the end, it told a story of a really gifted, talented, uh, vulnerable human being who did his homework. He was an amazing student of musical theater uh, and ended up really leaving a legacy that is uh, pretty amazing. It has to be difficult to sit there and sum up a man's life in 90 to 120 minutes uh, as best as you can, especially somebody like Howard who we're still singing these Disney songs in the car. You know, some of us are, are grown men over six feet tall. You're like six, six, um, six, three. And we're sitting there and just singing these songs with the windows rolled up. Cause sometimes we don't want people hearing us, but you know, uh, we'll sing a whole new world or whatever else. Uh, when you see something like that, um, for Howard, is there something that you really wanted in the documentary that you couldn't put that'll probably end up as a bonus feature on a Blu-ray? Uh, yes. I mean, you're very perceptive. There's uh, 90 minutes is not enough to tell anyone's life story. Um, so the, the, the resources, uh, and the, and the tape and the film we had, had many, many stories and sidebars. Um, and, and a lot of them were things that might be interesting, uh, as a sidebar to the main plot, but just didn't quite fit. Um, Stories about how, uh, you know, some songs didn't work out. He wrote several songs for both Mermaid and, um, Beauty and the Beast that didn't make it. You know, they were cut out. Songs like Human Again for, um, for Beauty and the Beast. Um, he was a, such a student of, uh, of Broadway and, and, and wrote some shows that never saw the light of day. He was writing a show about Babe Ruth. Um, and, in the end, it didn't come together. So instead, they started working on Little Shop of Horrors. 
so uh, the songs and the demo tapes from those, the, the kind of rehearsal tapes where he was working with Alan on those songs are still around. And I would have loved to have included those because it shows, and those weren't failed shows. They were just shows that weren't finished uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and those are some of the most interesting things. Um, so, I, I, yes, I mean, there's a million stories like that that you wish you could have put in. Uh, but in the end, you, you have to stick to kind of the spine of um, what his story was and, and just be able to get that across for the average viewer. Uh, I, I, maybe someday I could do the four-hour version of it for the, the people that want to go down the Howard rabbit hole. Well, that'll be a great Disney Plus uh, weekly series for a while. It would, yeah. Um, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a marshmallow M&M, you know, hard candy exterior on the outside and then just soft and mushy on the inside. Like certain things will just make me tear up as well. With one mm-hmm. of the stories that you were first developing and started putting it together, was there one that was ultra schmaltzy to you that you're like, a normal person wouldn't have teared up to this, but because you knew Howard, like instantly the waterworks started coming? Well, I think most of it was uh, when we began to learn that he was sick and that happens with anybody in our lives. I mean, even in the pandemic we're going through now, you hear of people that are really suffering and it was very much the same situation. In fact, Dr. Fauci, who we all listen to um, was one of the lead AIDS researchers when Howard was going through this. So there's some similarities between that uh, pandemic and this. Um, so hearing that and, and then um I guess what always gets me a little bit is the the heroism and the persistence that it takes to work on your craft, even when you're very, very sick. When Howard was in his hospital bed, he was writing songs like um, Prince Ali for uh, Aladdin. These big, joyful songs when he's just not doing well. Uh, and that's as emotional as anything. Um because it shows a person, and I think this is true of Howard, and Alan pretty much said so, that a person who doesn't want to be defined by his illness, who doesn't want to be defined by a person who is, um, you know, fighting against the unwinnable. Um, yes, he was doing that. Yes, he was taking his treatments and doing all he could. He had a brilliant partner in Bill, who was uh, Bill Lauk, who was taking care of him and doing his best. But the primary thing was I... I want to do my work. I want to be devote the rest of my life to my work. And I think that's heroic and that's emotional to me. It's definitely admirable. Um, when, when yeah. the documentary was finally completed and you got to sit down with Alan Menken himself, who was his writing partner for so long and so many of these classics and then Howard's sister, what was their reaction when they finally got to see the documentary? I mean, even if you watched it virtually because of social distancing. Well, different for each of them. With his sister, I showed her pieces while I was making it. Um, there are some documentary filmmakers that would rather not do that and just, you know, keep the movie a surprise. But the reason I wanted to do that is she, more than anyone, knew Howard's story, and I wanted the accuracy to and, and the tone uh, to be correct. So I would share with her little the 10-minute segments or whatever along the way. Um, and she was always honest with me, and we had a good relationship because of that. I didn't want her to be... Um, you know, gee, Don, you're doing swell. I, I really want her to be honest with notes with me. And I didn't want to make a puff piece about Howard. I wanted to do something that was uh, authentic. Alan was a different story. He didn't see anything along the way. And I said it to him right before the holidays uh, one year. And 
uh, on a Friday and he watched it over the weekend and called back on Monday and said, I have to do the score for this. And I said, excuse me, I thought you just said you have to do the score for this. And um, I, I said, Alan, I can't afford you. This is a, it's a micro budget documentary. And I was, I actually financed and, and made it myself as an independent film. It wasn't done through Disney. Um, and he said, that's, that doesn't matter. I'll just do it. And, um, he saw it as his tribute, his way of, of working with Howard one last time. And I was really moved by that. And of course, you know, he, he wrote a really wonderful emotional score for the film. And then we brought in Chris Bacon, uh, one of our collaborators that we both worked with to arrange, orchestrate and produce that score. Um, so just getting that gift from Alan at the 11th hour was amazing because any uh, filmmaker would love that. Um, and, and would love to afford that normally. Uh, but it wasn't about fees. It wasn't about a normal movie making process. It was really about, um, working with Howard one last time. And maybe that was my motivation too. You know, I, I, it seemed like, you know, I worked with him a couple of years, but that was not enough. And, uh, to be able to kind of know him again, uh, was a, a, a bittersweet, uh, moment for me, for all of us. So you're pulling off more Disney magic through uh, independent film as well, getting Alan to sign on to do the, the score for it instead of taking just his usual fee. Yeah. And, and everybody was like that. I mean, we mixed the film at, uh, at Skywalker, which is a, you know, the best sound facility in the world. And, uh, it was the same with them just to say, um, you know, this is, this is how much money we have. <laughs> it's, it's not a lot, but would you be willing to? And, um, uh, you know, Gary Rizzo, who is uh, an amazing mixer who, uh, mixes all the Pixar films and, um, you know, just a Oscar winning, uh, sound guy did all the sound work for us. And so we, we really had a, um, a fortunate time pulling together all those, uh, elements, mainly because people wanted to celebrate Howard's life. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot now. What is your favorite, favorite song from Howard and Alan together in the movies that you've produced? Oh wow! Um, uh, that's an impossible question, but I'll say um, "Beauty and the Beast" ballad is one that always interests me because it is so poetic. Howard was all about putting story and very specific plot into his songs. So uh, when you look at Ursula's song from Little Mermaid, it's uh, Ariel doesn't even know Ursula exists at the beginning of that song. By the end of the song. Uh, she signed away her voice or the beast. The mob song is also a brilliant piece of, of work. It's late in the movie, which is very hard to put a song late that late in the movie. Uh, Gaston doesn't know there's a beast. He shows up at Belle's house to ask her to marry him. And suddenly Belle comes out with a magic mirror and there's a beast in the castle. We've got to go get him. And they all march off with uh, torches and end up at the front door of the beast's house. That's a brilliant song. But the beauty of the beast ballad is different. It's, it's an expression of um, the the hope of young love and sung by uh, Angela Lansbury, you know, who is in herself uh, going to be 95 next month and is a uh, legend beyond legends, I think, because of her Broadway work. And, and to get her on the movie was a thrill to have her play Mrs. Potts, but to have her sing. And Howard knew that. And, um, and so he wrote this song in a very lovely way for her to sing. And I think that's a, it's a really special moment, I think, in the movie. That's amazing. The behind the scenes stuff is always fun. One fan theory question for you, though, because I, you start listening to some of the adults who grew <laughs> up 
with Little Mermaid and loved it as children. And then they become bitter middle-aged adults and start blaming Ariel and saying she was the actual villainess in the film because she signed away her voice. She didn't have it stolen the way people wanted to portray that. What is your take on people saying that Ariel's the actual villain? Wow. Well, she's not the villain, but um, the, stories are about uh, many things. Stories are about what it's like to be human. Stories in Disney movies many times are about growing up. And, and many times, most of the time, stories are about a moral dilemma. Uh, you know, you're a cursed beast and you have to have somebody fall in love with you, but you look uh, like a buffalo. You know, so those kinds of dilemmas are difficult. And Ariel was faced with that. And um, she was left with that moral dilemma and that choice of what to do. Was it the right choice? Well, she got her her goal and her dream in the end to have her legs and go up on land. Um, but in doing so, especially from a modern perspective, we think, really, she signed away her voice to get her man. Um, but that was a fairy tale. That was a very common and, um, you know, story to tell and, and possibly still is with, with a filter of time. Um, so not the villain. No, I think Ursula is too big of a villain. She kind of, uh, overarches all, all of Ariel's things, but maybe a misguided youth who, uh, occasionally makes the wrong choice to get what she wants. And I think as an audience, we can all relate to that because we've all done the same thing. Fantastic. See, we've settled that argument. No one can bring it up anymore. You know, it was misguided. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Don, I, I love talking to you every chance I get, especially when we're here in Newport beach or anywhere, even at the Disney studios. Uh, Howard is right available right now on the Disney plus streaming service. Uh, life of Howard Ash, uh, uh, Ashman. I'm sorry, Howard Ashman a remarkable lyricist and just, I'm getting flustered thinking about all these stories uh, (laughs) because that's the magic that you guys have at Disney. You reveal the, you pull back the curtain just enough to where we sit there and we're more, more engrossed and more involved in the storytelling. Well, and the, the reason I like to do that is, is we're, especially with the documentary is we're humans, you know, we're, we talk about Disney magic, you know, the Disney magic is about human beings and there's, there's a very bittersweet thing going on right now where there's a lot of layoffs and difficulties with the pandemic. And I find it very touching online and on Facebook to read people's reaction to it, which is that Disney magic is not about the buildings or the, the, uh, you know, the films or whatever. It's about the human beings that went into that and the, um, and the human passions that go into everything from uh, writing a song like Howard did to serving a good meal to a guest at Disneyland, you know, those are all parts of the magic. And so if we can sometimes pull back the curtain and say, you know, guys, we put our pants on one leg at a time. We suffer. We, uh, we struggle with story ideas. Um, it's frustrating. It's exciting. It's, it's a, it, but it's a, a very humbling and, and human uh, activity we all do, which is to try to bring some entertainment and just some joy to, uh, to the world. And, and we take that as a high calling and we're, uh, lucky to do it. Perfect. Don, where can we find you on social media if we want to connect with you? Oh, I'm uh, at Don Han, and I'm on DonHan.com and uh, all over the place on Facebook, Twitter, that kind of thing. And um, Yeah, uh, so you'll find me out there. Perfect. Don Han, again, Howard, uh, the the documentary based on, on Howard Ashman streaming now on Disney+. Plus. Congratulations. Thank you so much for your time, as always. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you face-to-face soon once this... Uh, 
thing starts moving along and maybe I'll even see you on the teacups at Disneyland. I would love that. <laughs> thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you.